for joining us again on the Pixis Podcast, the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. I hope you enjoyed part one of our special two-part podcast series focusing on a session entitled Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion at the Pixis 2020 virtual meeting. Courtney Solani and I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Name, Dr. Clark, Dr. Meltzer, Dr. Teal, Dr. Lopez, and Dr. Allen. Please join us for part two as we conclude this important discussion. One other thing I wanted to say regarding what would the whole what can we do question is, you know, a lot of the efforts that are done in diversity and inclusion spaces in institutions, in ivory tower institutions, are voluntary. They do not contribute towards promotion. You do not get FTE to do this work. And so those of us who do this work and who are asked to do this work because we are underrepresented minorities, we end up undergoing what was termed as the minority tax which is essentially the other extra work that you are doing as a minority because you want to bring other people up and you want to help, you know, uh, other people of color to either for recruitment or retention or whatever other initiatives are going on at the institution, particularly in 2020. And a lot of this is not then applied towards anything that is uh, legitimized through actual time to do it or through promotion pathway applications. And so if you're really serious about diversity and inclusion and improving diversity and inclusion, not just pipeline, but now we're also talking faculty retention and we're talking at the leadership level, it requires that you actually give people time, devote money, devote funds, devote actual officers, et cetera, for people to do this work and then have it count towards promotion, just like QI counts towards promotion. This should also count towards promotion because it's time that people spend doing like Dr. Allen was saying, I also spent a lot of time interviewing underrepresented minorities for residency, for fellowship, et cetera. And I want to do it, but it's never, ever reflected in anything that I see other than like some voluntary work on the side, which is fine, but it's not promoting you as a minority individual in a leadership pathway. And so also having leadership that looks like you and having leadership that can say, hey, you know what, we really need to devote more time or money or services or whatever to this cause is critically important. And to your point, the opposite is true, that while this is a huge tax to do this work, we also need to make it everybody's work. So one of the things we're trying to do in the Emory School of Medicine is when we have a task force that's around a specific project in DEI, we're trying to make sure that that committee is not just a tax on a subgroup of our colleagues, that it is everybody. And some folks who are not traditionally part of this are going to learn through that process are going to be brought along and it will make us all stronger because there are people who have the privilege that Till was talking about who can really have an impact if they understand the importance of the work. I was just going to say, I think the bitter irony too is that the research would suggest that people are more likely to listen to a Caucasian male talk about the importance of diversity than they are any of us on this call, and that I, as a Caucasian, people are more likely to listen to me talk about it, and in fact, in some ways, more likely to not view minority people in a positive light if they are trying to advocate for diversity, which is sort of a horrific irony. That's what I was going to say as well. That was one of the things I talked about in my Pixis talk that I don't know that I've ever seen that study before. I was researching the talk, but I thought it was like mind blowing that in this one particular vignette that they pulled out 
though a lot of this research is in business, not so much in medicine, but you would imagine that it's the same, that when they had a vignette where there were two bosses, one was a black male boss and the other was a white male boss, you know, same resume, same job description, but they were fake people. So they just changed the picture of the person, gave them the same description, but now they have a different picture in their head of who the description is of. When the black male boss hired a black employee, the way that people rated the black male boss's job performance actually dropped. When the black male boss hired a white employee, then their performance scores stayed the same. When the white male boss hired a black employee, the scores actually went up like, oh, that's so great. They're committed to diversity and that makes them a good boss. So in some ways, it's actually, unfortunately, up to the majority to pitch in more because they actually have a greater impact. So I think this is all of our work, not just those of us who are actually in the minority. And I do think it's important to say, because I can imagine somebody listening to this podcast thinking, but wait a minute, those are terrible people who viewed that black boss and that white boss differently, and they're judgmental, and they're not like me, and I'm a good person, and I would never think that. And the reality is, unfortunately, all of us think those things all the time if we're actually honest with ourselves. And and there's absolutely this subconscious tendency to support, encourage people like yourself. Um, that's something your brain does without you even knowing it. And so whether you're offering an interview or setting up a research connection or doing like that, oftentimes you're behaving towards somebody because they feel like you and you want to support them. And I think being aware that our brain does that and thinking, wait, 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 how else can I reach outside of my inner circle, my usual network and support people who are equally qualified or may be overcoming amazing obstacles like Dr. Allen was talking about to get where they are today? How can I continue to support these people too? I think that's the thing that's so hard. For pediatricians, actually, I think we are both blessed and cursed with the way most of us view the world. Pediatrics and adult medicine are very different. Pediatricians are like, kids matter. We're focused on the right things. Kids deserve to eat. They deserve to have a safe place to live. We believe they deserve insurance. These are all things that are not controversial within pediatrics, but are still controversial in adult medicine. When you talk about how are you going to take care of your patient, the whole patient. Adult doctors just have a different worldview. I think that's the truth. I'm not trying to talk about politics. I'm trying to talk about justice. I think that pediatricians as a group, largely, are very focused on justice for our patients. We have the benefit of being able to say that because they're kids, they're helpless, it's not their fault, so it makes things different. It feels different. And I think the fact is that we know that they live inside of families. So we also have to care about the whole family or else we can't achieve what we're trying to do for the individual patient. So it just changes, I think, the way we feel about the world around us. And so I believe that when we talk about implicit bias, we're horrified at the idea of it applying to us. Like, what? That is deeply offensive to us on every level. How could you possibly think that I harbor any kind of bias against another person? It hurts deeply inside to think that could be a thing. The point is that that is the whole point. That's what we're talking about, that this isn't explicit bias. We're not talking about overt racism. This is something your brain is doing that is just reflexive. It's a reflex, like a cough or a morrow. 
You can't control it, but you have to know that it's happening. You just have to accept that it's happening. There is decades of research that it is happening, that we don't know that it's happening, but it's happening. It's happening with white doctors and black doctors and Latino doctors. And it's not about who you are as a person. It's just human biology. And it seems like it should be easier for us to understand that in medicine. We use the example of peanut butter and jelly to explain about implicit bias. But the same is true about every medical decision that we make all day, every day. If we had to break every single thing we do down and not try and build it into patterns, we would be unable to take care of patients. Doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals actually understand about pattern recognition and about lumping things to help us make decisions better than the general population. That's all that this is. But we have to be honest with ourselves about it happening or we can't make any progress. This isn't about other people, those other bad people over there. It's about all of us regular people wanting to do the right thing. But we cannot do it unless we are honest about unconscious things that influence the way that we make decisions. And that may not always be accurate in that moment. They may be an oversimplification or the recognition of the wrong pattern. And that changes the way we behave, whether we want it to or not. I myself have new mom. And I'm wondering, how do you suggest that I talk to my child, how we talk to our children about these topics that just feel so heavy? I have an eight-year-old and it has been very, very important to me to educate her about this. And so we started with just talking about stereotypes and how important it is to not believe in stereotypes. Um, We also have discussions about racism. On Martin Luther King Day, when my daughter was, I think, four or five, we read about Martin Luther King. We read about Rosa Parks. It's very important to read about the history of this country and to teach our children, you know, what happened and what injustices happened. And it doesn't have to happen in a harsh or severe way. It has to happen in a way where our children realize that this fight has been fought through love, just as, you know, Martin Luther King, that's what he taught was a peaceful protest. So I am hoping that through educating my daughter about racism, that she will be able to acknowledge it when it happens and see it when it happens. And then hopefully, you know, just as we are ourselves, you know, what we're learning, you know, when I learned about implicit bias, I was like, whoa, you know, this is really something. And, and then you see it every single day. You see it every single day. You see it like, you know, this weekend on rounds, I saw it when I saw a black nurse taking care of a patient and one of our trainees were like, um, are you the nurse? You know, it's just, it's very, very subtle. Our trainee didn't ask any of the other nurses if that particular nurse, if that nurse was the patient's nurse at the bedside. So it's subtle. And the important thing is just to kind of raise awareness. And with our kids, it starts early and we just have to teach them about racism. We have to teach them about stereotypes and we do actually have to teach them about implicit bias. I'll also make a comment as well in terms of kids. I will say it's challenging. I have twin girls who are five and you can see the transition like they're in kindergarten now and you can see the transition when people are starting to notice that their skin color is different. For me, 
I think it is important to just have that conversation. They come home from school. It may be different depending on where you are, but when they come home and they say, I really want straight hair. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. Straight hair is fine, but your curly hair is also great too, you know, and kind of really talk about the differences in hair and skin. And I don't say it's not white. It's just really light brown, you know, because we're brown. We're not actually black. If you look at black, that's the color of my watch. If you look at white, that's the color of paper. So, you know, just kind of those subtle little things. And I think it, the, the most important thing, though, is to have the conversation. Now, it may be different for families of minorities, because I think those conversations actually come up at home. And I think families of the majority, that actually may not come up. But I think it is something as simple as like, if you're watching the news and you see something that happens in the news, obviously you don't need to talk about the violence that occurs, but you know, talk about what stems behind it and actually just bring it up in a conversation. The other thing too, is that people think that kids don't get it that you know you have to kind of wait for a certain age for kids to have start this conversation i'll be quite frank as i said my kids are five years old they know they know that there is a difference between them and the other little girls and boys at school they know so obviously everybody has to do what's right for their own family and their own kids but i think starting these conversations and having these honest conversations with kids is important But I think to have those conversations, you actually have to be honest with yourself, just like Dr. Allen had talked about before, is you need to recognize that we all have these unconscious biases towards other groups. And we have to recognize that within ourselves and recognize that your kids are going to be developing those and make a conscious effort to have those conversations with your kids. Thankfully, there's lots of authors that have really come into their own in this space many, many good books that have come out in the last two years about this. And so I think that's an important area to look as well. If you're having challenges about how do I start this talk, there's lots of books to help with that. I was just going to add that I have teenagers and teenagers are such an amazing group of kids to talk about these kinds of things, partly because they just want to argue with you about stuff. So it's great to just ask a question or throw an observation out there and then explore it because it's fun. But the other piece is that there's so much in the culture that you can explore with them. And there's lots of incredibly important books and things like that. And then there's also stuff that you can kind of sneak in there, like the movie 42, or I was just making sure I had the right title, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg movie on the basis of sex. And you get to watch that with your kids and say, do you realize that this is happening when I was a child? Like this is recent or do you recognize how hard it must have been for Jackie Robinson to be on stage like that and not only performing better than everybody else, but also tolerating the kind of behaviors he tolerated without getting angry and how difficult that must have been for him. And so there's lots of opportunities to explore it in a way that doesn't feel like you're lecturing or telling them what to think or being boring parents that you can actually really kind of get into this. But you do have to say those same rules. Like, we're not perfect. You have to recognize that people make mistakes and fall on their face. We have to act with grace with one another. Um, And we have to point out when people make mistakes, but we have to be okay with growing. The teenagers are fun. Yeah, I don't have children. I've read the literature and know where there are points to yeah, we're more effective than others. But one thing I have found with teenagers and young adults in some cases is the denial that there are these issues, maybe before 2020 where it's become 
so apparent that this is not an issue of the past. But a lot of folks saying, you know, that's your generation. You know, we just see people. So I'm curious if others have had that, because those conversations where there is no realization, it's back to the there is no color, it, it can be tough. I would say that social media is so much of a presence in people's lives and meeting teenagers and young adults that if you're willing to open up your social media network a little bit, you realize how many voices there are out there. And I actually think that my kids, if anything, push me a little bit on this. And I may be incredibly lucky. I I think I am lucky. I have wonderful children. But they are actually more likely to point out faults in me than I am to to say that it's not a problem. In other words, they very much embrace this. And it's part of the school, too. They know that there are people out there who are fighting amazing fights. And they put their voices, those people's voices, they put on their social media to expand Mm -hmm. those voices further still. Yeah, I think it depends on your bubble. And if you have an expanded view of uh, society. I'm a mom to a five-year-old. And I have to say, it's, it is, uh, as everyone, if anyone has kids knows, it's an extremely humbling experience. Because they bring up stuff that you don't always have the answer to. Or you don't always know exactly what you're going to say when they ask you. Or they ask you in front of other people. You're like, wow, we shouldn't really be talking about this right now. Whatever the, kind of, you know, whatever the thing may be with the kids in terms of timing. But I will say that, you know... It's a really good way to essentially to check yourself, because if your kid says, hey, how come you don't have any friends that are this, that or the other? How come you don't have any friends that are black or how come you don't have any friends? I mean, that's a that's kind of a wake up call to your own social circle, to your own who you are hanging out with, who your friends are. And really it's kind of to tokenism, because you know, tokenism is like, well, I have this one black friend. I have this one Hispanic friend. I mean, that's that's a little different than actually having a, a, a network of individuals that are diverse that you can then expose your children to and who then you can interchange ideas and cultures and et cetera with. It's a very different kind of picture, I'd say. And so kids can be a kind of a really good uh, mirror to you and what your circle looks like and who your friends are. And that's I think that's a, probably a really good thing. We're running close to time here, but uh, we learned a lot from you guys as experts in the field. And we were just curious if you took anything away new from this or what stood out to you the most. Well, I just always think it's funny that, and I said this in the beginning of my actual Pixis talk, but I've done a fair amount of diversity, equity, inclusion work throughout my time as a physician, both in training and then now as an attending but I actually have no formal background or training in it whatsoever. So I just think it's always funny that people think I'm an expert in the field, which I think just means that I happen to be a black person. And I'm very passionate about this work. It comes up all the time, and I think it wraps into everything that I do, and so it's really important. But there's been a lot of talk in 2020 about people of color being exhausted by this constant need to be the representative of the people, if that makes sense. And I think that I'm fortunate that I've had the strength and the interest to embrace that. But everybody in medicine has different things they bring to the table. And I've chosen to allow this to be one of the things that I bring to the table to try and bring a unique perspective that maybe wouldn't otherwise be at the table. But I do think that we need to be careful to make sure that, as Kayla said, we're rewarding the people who choose to do this work, not just assuming that because they happen to be an underrepresented minority, they know what they're talking about 
or that they actually want to contribute to this work. It's more than that. It takes more than that. One of the things I talked about in my Pixis talk was code switching, which is when an individual changes the way they behave or the way they're perceived in order to fit in with the majority culture. And this is an important concept for people, people in leadership because we all code switch. It's like how you behave different in church or school than you do when you're out with your friends. So there's a certain amount of that that's necessary, but it can also undermine the diversity of ideas that you get when you allow people to be their authentic self. I was having a conversation with a bunch of people about this committee that they wanted to build, and they wanted my perspective on how to make it more diverse. And they wanted to know if it was offensive if they asked this person to be on the committee because they're an underrepresented minority and they wanted to improve diversity. And I said, yes, because that's not the only reason you're asking them to be on the committee, or it shouldn't be. You're asking them to be on the committee because if you want a good committee, you want someone because they're going to bring their background and unique perspectives to the table. You want to pick people who won't just code switch and be happy to sit there quietly and fit in. And too much of the time we select people to come up through the pipeline who are just going to do that. Think about how many times when considering someone for a job or a committee or a special role, someone has talked about their quote unquote fit. We need to think less about fit and more about making sure we have a diversity of ideas. That's what builds innovation and creativity. So what I would say is, like, you actually need to be intentional about not just selecting diverse individuals, but also providing the psychological safety and freedom that allows that person to be their authentic self. It should not be that you're selecting them because they are an underrepresented minority. You got put on the committee because your mentor is friends with the chairperson or whatever it is that got you on there. You didn't win a Nobel Prize. You had good connections. But that doesn't mean you don't have something to offer. And when you're trying to build diversity, you're not just doing it for the sake of numbers and quotas. It's because diverse individuals have something different to offer us, and we should want that perspective. You have to want people who are going to be brave enough to speak up about the way they see things through their own unique lens, not just people who happen to be black or happen to be Latino or whatever it is. Yeah, I think that's really important, Dr. Allen. Thank you for for sharing that. And just to end on a positive note, what gives you hope into looking into the future? I can speak to that just for a moment. And this is a recent occurrence. So my husband is Caucasian. He has been around me obviously, since we've been married and and then some uh, this whole time. So he has listened and he has learned a lot, stuff that he, he, again, because of his white privilege, he would never have thought about or had never really considered. And then, you know, all of that, what happened in 2020, he's really kind of turned a corner in terms of perspective because he just didn't realize what he didn't know. And so now he's become like a champion for a lot of these causes which I think is incredible. And to the point that I think Dr. Thiel had said, we need more individuals that are in the majority to kind of speak to the issues of racism, of systemic inequities, et cetera, because I mean, for better, for worse, those are the voices, unfortunately, that are the most listened to, especially if you're a white male. And so he's on these diversity and inclusion task forces, and he is now, you know, kind of leading some of these efforts And people are just kind of like, wow, you know, you have a lot to say. (laughs) They're shocked because he's a white male. But I think that that really speaks volumes about listening and learning and saying, wow, you know what, this is messed up and figuring out what I can do 
is a person in the majority to really help to reduce a lot of these systemic inequities and change the system, whether it be institutional, systemic, individual, whatever. There's lots of different places this can apply, but that gives me hope. That gives me a lot of hope. I mean, you know, he's he's a great guy. Otherwise, I wouldn't have married him in the first place. But this particular uh, aspect of him, I think, has really come come to fruition. And I really think it's neat to see. And I really it really speaks to me about the importance of having that representation and that voice in particular on behalf of of uh, individuals who cannot get to the table, who cannot have that voice. To add to that, if there is a silver lining in the pain of what we've seen in 2020 is, as Dr. Lopez said, people who did not, weren't as aware of things that were very much a part of our society and, you know, and accounted for substantial health inequity in our communities, have become more aware. Having conversations like this at national meetings, used to be I was on a you know, if I was on a committee and a question about diversity came up, they would, uh, oh, Carolyn, this is your lane. And I don't want to be the only one who's in a room talking about this. So now I see my colleagues who are mostly white male leaders who their students are pushing them, their young faculty are pushing them, their patients are pushing them, and they now bring it up and they have an opinion and they have the cultural humility to ask, to want to learn more. So, you know, I believe strongly societal progress is made at very slow rates, except when there are tipping points. And I believe we have the external and internal factors now that contribute to a significant tipping point. I think we are taking advantage of it. What are some suggestions of resources you guys may have if our listeners are interested in learning more? I think one thing that Chanel and I encouraged everyone to do is to, and we made this kind of one of our learning objectives for the session was for everyone to take to take the Harvard implicit bias test. And I think we included the link, which I believe is like projectimplicit.com, if I'm not mistaken. We encourage everyone to take that just as a first step, just to learn what your own implicit biases are, because, you know, we have to just recognize what our biases are. So we encourage that just as a first step. I think to follow that, I would absolutely read the book written by one of the researchers who developed that test, Mazarin Banerjee. She wrote Blind Spot. I would read Dolly Chogue's book, the How Good People Fight Bias, The Person You Mean to Be is excellent. And a lot of the resources that get mentioned in those books are things like Carol Dweck's Growth Mindset book, thinking about some of the behavioral economics books by Richard Fowler and Cass Sunstein. Nudge is one of my favorite. It's easy to remember, nudge. Um, but thinking about how your brain works and how you behave, even as a very well-intentioned, educated human being, I think it's nice to start with those and then read some of the more medical literature because all of a sudden you're going to realize how applicable that medical literature is to you. It's not things that happen to other physicians doing terrible things that you can't relate to. This is us, and this is me, and this is you, and you need to own it. Um, and so I, I would highly encourage starting with some of those self-awareness type things. Yeah, inclusion starts with I, and I do think working on ourselves and becoming more understanding of the mistakes we make and having that cultural humility lens can be really helpful. There's so many good books right now. Ibrahim Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist, Isabel Wilkerson's Cast is really eye-opening. 
uh, from sort of the human nature historical perspective. There's an abundance of really important reading out there. I think understanding historical context is also important for people to understand why there is a mistrust or a distrust. It's real and it is founded in history. So, for example, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks is an example. Any book about the Tuskegee experiment is an example. Or even reading recent journalism, you know, CNN, etc., on what has occurred for Hispanic women in ICE detention who had forced hysterectomies with no conformed consent. Actually, there's lots of journalism that's out there, too, about this topic uh, from a historical context, which is important to understand so you can understand why there is an inherent distrust from communities of color entering into a medical system. There's a reason for it. It's not fake. It's, it's a real reason. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about becoming a self-perpetuating healthcare problem, right? If you have distrust because you arguably are justified in having your distrust, then maybe you're not going to get vaccinated for COVID-19 because of what has happened historically to your group. But yet you are also then much more vulnerable to the disease and the implications of it. And it becomes this horrifying circle. So absolutely understanding where we came from and where we still are is critically important. When I was in medical school, actually at the institution where Henrietta Lack's story was founded, we didn't learn about that. Partly it's about my age, but we didn't learn about that. We learned about the history of the white male physician leaders and all the great work they did, which I'm not underestimating, but I don't think we've had a comprehensive approach nationally to the teaching of medical history that all our students should know. For those who like podcasts, one great podcast that was recommended to me by one of my colleagues was 1619. I don't know if anyone else has heard it, but it's it's beautiful. It's like an audio series from the New York Times, and it, it's just really, really compelling and beautiful. Well, thank you so much to everybody for your candor, for your honesty, for your inspiration, for your empowerment, for your education for everything that you've given us. And I hope that it will continue to give and we can each take all of your words of wisdom and do some introspection and affect our change within our own homes. And then it can ripple from there. Yeah. Just want to say thank you (laughs) for everything that you do and for the work that you're doing and for being an inspiration to so many people. Thank you so much. We thought it would be more difficult to get you all together, but we're very thankful that we could. So thank you so much for making this happen. Thank you for the opportunity to work with these wonderful colleagues. Yes, thank Thank you, everyone. Thanks. Thanks. Yes, thank you so much. And to all of our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website at PCICS.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated information on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and so much more. The song I Don't Know by Grapes was used under Creative Commons 3.0 attribution.